0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name's Alec Perry, and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I speak with SAC Consulting's Malcolm McDonald and Robert Ramsey about the increasing uptake of virtual fencing technology, opportunities for the farmed upland environment, the pressures on the beef sector, and connections to conservation let's just get kicked off. Um, Can we have a bit of an introduction from from the two of you and we'll we'll maybe start with Malcolm.
1: Thanks Alec. I'm a general agricultural consultant with SAC Consulting uh, based out of the formerly Inverness, currently Black Isle office. I deal with farmers, um, day-to-day technical advice, um, livestock and crops, uh, as well as uh, forms, niaxes and that type of thing. And lastly, I've become quite involved in uh, virtual fencing.
2: I'm Robert Ramsey. I work as a a agricultural consultant out of Auchincrew. I've worked with SEC Consulting for the last twelve years, and I do a mix of general work, but also quite a bit of specialist beef work as well. And certainly, that's that's why I'm here today. The virtual fencing story is fairly evolving, and it's really quite exciting. Both of you have been on the podcast before, but uh, Malcolm, this is actually your
0: second time on discussing virtual fencing. So I was just hoping you could get us kicked off. Could you give us a bit of an overview of how things have progressed since the last time you were on?
1: The first time I on was actually just before we had any collars uh, in use in Scotland. So it, it has kind of, there's been come on in leaps and bounds since then. I've seen there's a lot of the, the no-fence um, virtual fencing collars in use in Scotland. Um, and it, the, the first handful were through that risk group I was facilitating at the time. Shortly after that podcast went out, they received collars on the ground and started using them. Yeah, so the biggest change is that a lot of them are in use now across Scotland, uh, both early adopters and now just they're available to buy and there's no supply issues. So you're seeing them being you know, bought and used by a lot of people in Scotland now.
2: I think when I first heard you were doing this work, Malcolm, I was really pleased to see we were involved in it, but also probably was the kind of cynical farmer guy that was thinking but it won't come to anything will it you know but it's amazing how the speed of adoption of it and the power that these systems have i mean it really it really is getting hold and most areas of scotland now have some at least one person that'll be working with virtual fencing in some shape or form
1: yeah, it went from like quite an unusual thing. You couldn't when we started the risk group, there wasn't actually any available. And the question was uh, that would be in late 2020, I think it was. The question was, can we get these things in Scotland? Is there any prototypes available? And that's in the space of two years. It's gone from yes, there is, and they're commercially available, and you know, not overly expensive uh, in some contexts, and uh, easy to get to just a real commercial product which is on the ground and working and working well for the most part too.
0: It's, it's quite likely in the, in the course of this podcast, what we're really going to focus on here is, is beef. Um, I don't want any sheep farmer to feel like they're, they're missing out. But is it still the case, Malcolm, that in terms of feasibility, um, beef and, and cattle really are the, the kind of target for virtual fencing technology?
1: Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, just uh, it comes down to the money, really. Uh, The the cow collars are about £240 a collar, plus a kind of subscription. And the sheep ones are cheaper. Last time I looked, I think they're about £140 or £150, which is, yes, a good bit cheaper than your cow, but one cow is equal to six sheep. They're still comparatively, because you need so many for a sheep flock, they are still very expensive, I think, per per sheep. And for the output from the sheep, they're still expensive. Um, so, yes, I think beef beef is where we'll see them for the for the foreseeable future, unless they get much, much cheaper.
2: I was talking to a farmer about, basically just about that. So he's working with, he's got 200 collars and it's, you know, it's, it's going really well, but what his point was for a hill you a hill cow you know if if you lose a hill cow you know if it disappeared you'd be worried you had lost the cow if you lost a hill you you'd be really worried you'd lost the collar (laughs) so it's it's kind of you know it's they're they're just too expensive to be commercially viable but there will be I mean, there absolutely is a place for callers, for sheep and goats. And, you know, whether it's crofters and common grazing and or just enthusiasts, you know, there's, there's definitely a place for them. But I don't think it's going to be a mainstream sheep management tool anytime soon. So just on that, Robert, what is it about
0: virtual fencing technology that is particularly exciting for the beef sector, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, so I, I think virtual fencing is actually in the last wee while I've got my head round I think it's the biggest step forward in farming since the advent of a quad bike. you know I think it really has opened up huge opportunities for farmers now where where are those opportunities? In many cases it's the hills so it's putting cattle back into hill areas and the challenge with most hills is that 90% of the hill suits cows and 10% really really doesn't so it's cliffs or it's a wet hole or it's maybe a very sensitive habitat as well and cattle, unmanaged cattle on there are a risk to themselves and a risk to the hill. When we can manage them and when we can rotationally graze them in a hill environment, you know, the whole thing comes to life. And the economics the economics of suckler cows on low ground farms are under pressure at the moment, but the economics of managed hill grazing of suckler cows, can, you can develop a system where there's next to no costs. You're harvesting... or you're making use of a natural capital asset and providing a real service at the same time and the the other area I think that it becomes really exciting is the the ability to move as well so you can for new entrants for young people we can actually use these cattle with collars to go to unfenced hills, unfenced parts of, you know, forestry parcels or whatever, we can really bring these places to life and provide a really valuable grazing service. So I think the opportunities for these, we're only just scratching the surface at the moment, but the opportunities are nearly endless.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd agree with all that. I was speaking to a colleague just the other day and, um, he said he thinks it may be revolution- revolutionary for health farming, and I do agree to to some extent. Um, also, on the kind of I've had quite a few calls from people who are not traditional cow keepers or people who maybe didn't have sheep and they're just moving or they're just straight new entrants. They've got large bits of hill or bits of hill they haven't been able to use before. Using the collars to manage their cattle has giving them a sense of security with their, with their stock, which they wouldn't have before. They were quite nervous of just letting cows out onto a large hill with, with poor fencing or no fencing, but it's allowing them access to the cattle industry, I suppose, or the beef industry, which they wouldn't have done without that technology.
2: And and the big change as well. I know you've covered sea eagles in this podcast in the past, Alec, and uh, that discussion, that debate is ongoing as to you know where uh, what the future of sea eagles and the future of hill farming is. But certainly for those areas that are very exposed to sea eagle predation or or any type of predation, actually, your calf is a much more resilient animal than your than than a lamb. So. In those real sea eagle areas we've got a real opportunity to still have a ruminant, still manage forage still produce high value protein from a a very low value forage, but do that without having a you know or, or without being so exposed to to predation and I, I think that's when we go up the west coast, I think we'll see a huge increase in Uh, or or I hope we'll see a huge increase in cattle in hill areas because I know we're going to see a pretty significant decrease in sheep in these areas because of predation. But I don't know if you remember
0: the second episode of Thrill of the Hill, we had you on and we were talking about getting cows back out on the hill, the need for uh, hill cattle grazing strategies. How is the the industry moving in in terms of is that a growing trend are we seeing are we still seeing declines in in cattle in the uplands
2: yes i think you know your second episode of thrill of the hill alec i think was the best one i think it was the one that everyone should go and go and listen to with the exception of this one of course um but yeah so what's happening in the uplands is definitely a change so we're seeing uh all of farming's changing um the at actual cattle numbers we are we are now uh, involved in analyzing a uh, Scott moves data and looking at you know what is actually happening and certainly cow numbers are in decline um a lot of that is driven by previously high levels of cattle from previous subsidy schemes and things we still are seeing people finding out where the right number of cattle for their herd is and i think what we're finding in hill areas so hills and uplands is too many cattle is a bad thing, but no cattle at all is also a real challenge when it comes to managing grazing, managing, you know, we're, we're not, the hills aren't all about habitats, but you've got a big role to play in managing a habitat. And there's nothing really better than a, you know, a cattle grazing system on a hill to to, to break that um almost monoculture up and and bring in some new species and things so definitely there's a there's a need for cattle in these areas and i think we are seeing in some areas certainly a drift of cattle back up the hill Uh, particularly as we look at costs and cost you know the cost inflation has been astronomical in the last six months or so and this winter looks as if it's going to be particularly expensive those that are in the hills and uplands that have an opportunity to to reduce costs by making use of hill grazing, you know, there's a definite move towards that job and also a move towards collaboration. So if you've got a hill and don't actually own the cattle or want to own the cattle, there is an opportunity to allow someone else to make use of that resource for mutual benefit.
0: So Malcolm, if a client came to you and said to you, I was interested in, that I am interested in taking a look at virtual fencing technology, what is the starting point what should people be doing and and just as a kind of follow-up Robert what are some of the scenarios in which virtual fencing technology would be helpful I know we, we talked a little bit about crofting um just a, a little minute ago but uh, what, what are some of the scenarios where you think it could be particularly useful
1: okay um well starting point is well Frank, right now, the starting point is to to get a quote from No Fence, because they're the only uh, virtual fencing collar available in, in the UK currently. Um, so like I said, the price is about 200, £239 per cow collar, plus a subscription fee, which varies, is between 30 and £40 or £45 a year. So you need to make sure that the economics of it are going to stack up for you, or you can make the economics of it work one way or another. Um I suppose second to that, on making the economics work, is see if there's any grant funding you can access to help pay for these scholars. Um, in the crofting counties, crofting areas of, of Scotland, uh, if you're an eligible crofter, you can get a CAGS grant. And there have been a number of CAGS, um, CAGS grants. CAGS is a Crofting Agricultural Grant, that's all it stands for. Um, and they're a perfectly eligible piece of um, equipment technology to be funded, and that can be between 40 and 80% funding, depending on your circumstance. So again, that makes your your 239 pound, uh, you know, a lot a lot easier to stomach, I would say. Um, and in other areas, there's different. Um, there's the nature restoration fund, as may one to look at too. Uh, I don't know a great deal about the scheme, but if you can demonstrate specific conservation and biodiversity outcomes, you may manage to get the college fully funded. Um, so I think the economics, like like everything in farm, the economics are key and um, initially looking at the cost, see if it works for you and then see if there's some grant funding which can make it work for you would be the next step, I would say. And if, again, I think the uplands and the hills is where these things are most cost effective, to be honest, uh, the, the the price might be for you, comparing fencing a large your hill, with traditional fences and get a quote for that, and get a quote for the collars, and see which, um, see how they stack up, see how they compare. That's probably a starting point. Is just get back to basics and see how the economics work.
2: Yeah. So I, as I said, it's a really, you know, it's a hugely powerful tool, and and, and we use the phrase a game changer quite often. But in this case, it, I think it really is for many. On on Malcolm's point, the one thing I would add in is you know people at the start let's think about how you can use it rather than the reasons why you can't use it because plenty of people will will look at something new and say nah that'll not work for me but in this case there's an application for it on most farms so what we are seeing you know certainly we we mentioned crofters and there's a a huge role for crofting and crofters and, and cattle in the crofting areas. Often, the challenge in crofting areas is the the common grazing so if you've got multiple you know groups of people that own stock on a on a common grazing, it's usually fairly easy to sort out with sheep. but when it comes to cattle, it can be a bit of a challenge and there's there's often breed discussions and how do you manage bulls and who owns what you know there's a there's a difficult dynamic there, and this Really is the tool that allows you to manage your you know it's a common grazing, but you can you know come to that arrangement that you graze this side and I'll graze that side or you keep your stock over there and I'll keep mine here and crucially, you keep your bull over there and I'll keep mine over here so there's there's a role in there there's also a big role for collaboration there, and maybe you put both thoughts together and and manage the common grazing better, but it certainly does it opens a lot of doors. And also in the crofting areas opens doors to, you know, those derelict areas or those areas that aren't being pushed as hard as the as as others. In many crofting areas that I've seen anyway, there's, there are really progressive people who are pushing hard, and then there are lifestyle people, and there are are you know retired people who are doing a good bit less. It's difficult to take on a farm or a croft when you don't have a long, you know, you, you've no security, you've no length of a tenancy, so you you go in and the first thing you've got to do is fence it. Well, this is the thing that means you go in and the first thing you've got to do is open the float door and let them go uh, and then manage them remotely from your phone and manage them. You know, you've got so much power at your fingertips to do that. So certainly crofting, is a, a big role. The other area for me, the most exciting as, a, as a, an upland farmer, the, the most exciting area for me with collars is deferred grazing. So is how can we manage, use that hill area Producing low low value forage and using that forage at a time when we want low value forage. So if you've got spring calving cows, if we can outwinter them on deferred grass and effectively block graze them, strip graze them using collars, it opens up a whole hill area to do that and a, and a whole world of opportunities So that there's a big option, big opportunity there. And then if we take that same group of cows, so in the summer, if we're bulling cows at grass, rotational grazing is often a challenge we talk about rotational grazing a lot on in by actually managing multiple bullying groups and multiple groups of sheep makes rotational grazing quite difficult but with no fence collars or with virtual fencing collars, we're able actually to set up a really good rotation using what's in the field or you know what what assets we've got in the field already and also allowing calves to forward creep. So there's a, a problem again, forward creep grazing is where we use, traditionally we would use a poly wire. we hold the cattle back, but the calves are able to go in, in below the wire and graze in front of them. Now the highest, the, the most important time that calves will forward creep is close to weaning. So later on in the season, but at that stage your calves may be three, 300, 350 kilos and it's too big to creep below the wire. So it stops creeping below the wire. Whereas now with virtual fencing collars, we can have a virtual fence in front of the cows that the calves don't know. The calves don't know is there. The calves don't stray particularly far from the cow because there's still that bond. But we can get the best quality grass into the calf rather than into the cow. So yeah, and I'm sure I've missed. There are so many opportunities. Forage crops is another one. Um, you know there are there are people trialing and experimenting strip grazing forage crops with with virtual fencing collars and I'm sure as technology develops a and as systems you know systems grow and our understanding grows I think there's a you know a world of opportunities in in forage crop grazing as well.
1: Yeah I just echo what you kind of said there Robert uh, on the crofting front as well with the new entrant and the lifestyle type of thing it allows you to kind of take your, you know, pick up your fencing and take it with you in a very literal sense. You don't need to, and also to scale your investment in fencing or, you know, or, uh, fencing in a sense, as your enterprise goes, you just, you just buy more cows, uh, buy more collars to go with more cows rather than having to spend five grand in a manner on fencing, for example.
2: Yeah. And I'm just thinking as well, the the forestry story. So forestry and farming are, are you know, they're. It's often a contentious subject when you bring up forestry but when you look at what's planted and there's and there's an, a need for forestry in scotland there's a you know there's a need for a there's a need for both industries and the forestry story when you look at if you buy a thousand acre fa- a hill and plant how much do you actually plant there's an awful lot of green space within that forestry block which through time actually if we have more summers like we've had becomes a big fire risk as well. And actually grazing is a management tool to control fire, to control, you know, or to make use of that forestry area as well. So there is in my mind an opportunity. If I was a new entrant coming into farming and interested in cattle, I would probably be looking to get quite close to some of the forestry companies to take advantage of short term lets on the way in, but also manage those Large-scale forestry blocks as well, and use it to graze, graze fire breaks and, and graze open ground as well.
1: Yeah, one of the one of the. People who started the No Fence Company with the prototypes he had on goats, he actually uses the goats as a service to um, graze off, you know, small trees and and shrubs and stuff underneath um, power lines in Norway. So in that sense, he's getting paid just to use the livestock as a tool. So I don't see why you couldn't have, you know, whether it's cows or goats or anything, doing a similar thing to. I uh, fire breaks is the crucial one, I suppose, a very important one, to uh, just just instead of thinking of the of the livestock as as your, your output producing their calf, you know, uh, they're a tool which can be hired out to, to do a job. Instead of, you know, putting flail mowers or whatever you do with it instead into some of these areas, it's pretty tricky, whereas cows or goats will go almost wherever you need them to go.
2: And I've, I've thought about a whole other sector that benefits from this, and, and it's one of the main ones, is if we look at the regen ag stuff and look at the soil health stuff, our arable areas are chronically lacking in organic matter and fertility the organic matter the soil carbon story is absolutely huge and getting stock back onto arable farms is not optional it's compulsory and i genuinely think in the next five or ten years we're going to see a big increase in. i don't know whether it's going to be cattle from the west going east for a period of time or whether it's cattle going to the east you know to, to to be you know part of more diverse businesses through there but if we look at those true arable areas most of them are many hundreds of acres together and not a single fence not a single gate no infrastructure whatsoever and this is where you can make big inroads into improving soil fertility um by you know having a pretty straightforward low cost grazing system uh, by using collars.
0: And um Robert you mentioned carbon there so I just want to to touch on this subject you and I have discussed in the past the the cows and the carbon story it strikes me Robert that going forward towards 2030 we know that we've got these targets to to meet to cut emissions and I think the the beef sector can find itself unfairly targeted in in some respects with uh, regard to the carbon story. But where we have a particular strength with beef cattle, so far as I see it anyway, is the conservation story. And you kind of alluded to it earlier, but there is huge potential to get cattle back out on hills. That the the the, uh, the dung that is left on hills will will spur on your your um, your insect activity. You you'll have your soil conditioner. You're eating down rank vegetation that that isn't particularly useful um it it just strikes me that there's there's a conservation story there that maybe the beef sector should make more of a noise
2: about absolutely you know the the carbon story is hugely complex you know the the carbon story we've been beaten with a bit of a stick, you know certainly media wise with some pretty blunt, pretty basic science, and actually the, the the big picture, the big story is is hugely complex. But the conservation story can't be argued with. That if you put cattle back into hill areas, if you take cattle out of hill areas, the biodiversity goes down. And if you put cattle into it, um, it, it there will be exceptions to that. There will be areas that would be better off. Your very sensitive habitats are very unique habitats. But your kind of standard. Heather or Grass Hill in Scotland benefits from managed cattle grazing. And that's the important bit. Historically, we did that with people when staff were cheap. Now staff are, I was going to say expensive, but staff are really unavailable. Uh, the, the technology story is important. And if we look, what does set stocking on a hill system look like for cattle? It's not ideal. Do you know? It's, we're saying it's good for biodiversity. On the whole, it definitely is. But without rotation, without grazing and rest, what happens is cattle will select the good areas and they'll overgraze the good areas, they'll undergraze some areas and they won't graze some areas at all. So actually this system's the one that we can say, you know, we've grazed that off, we'll, we'll allow that to come back. We're not going there at all. We're not, you know, and, and how do we actually manage that? And it's a it's a mindset change as well. When we're doing that, we are producing beef, but the goal isn't producing beef. It's managing that habitat to to best advantage.
0: I think actually one of the best examples of this is probably management of designated sites I think all of us have done some work around management of designated sites we all understand that they're often cross-cutting and they don't particularly follow a fence line and there's there's huge scope there to to use virtual fencing technology to to go right up to the line
2: um, and to to know exactly what not to cross as long as long as we see a change you know for that to happen we need Funding. We need ex funding to actually cover these systems because at the moment we're on five pounds fifty a meter for a stock fence, and that's too. You know, it's good, and in the end, buy stuff, it's it certainly will fund. Hopefully, the big half of your fencing cost, but for a hill story and for a a dynamic story, the callers are the way forward, and we need to all, I think, get nature scott and, and scottish government to understand that actually these these systems which weren't available at the start of the ex system are probably the best investment that they can make for for triple areas or designated site areas um for you know for grazing for for benefit for the future
1: yeah just on the triple si i mean i one I wrote a management plan for comes to mind, where it's a, a bog woodland, and you know, the, ideally you wanted um, light cattle on it for short times, and then back off because it was at risk of um, gorse and other kind of scrub kind of growing into it and drying drying out the bog. But then it would get too wet to graze effectively. So the kind of you almost needed not far off real time management to, to manage it precisely, like which which you know, like just. You know, rounding cows up uh, manually, as you'd call it, and chasing them out is very labour-intensive. Whereas, if you can do that from your from your kitchen table, from your phone, then it makes very precise management of these very sensitive uh, sites and environments, you know, possible. Which is, um, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be uh, very important.
0: One of the things, Malcolm, and I'll reiterate this: people should listen to the first podcast we recorded. But one of the things that we discussed at the time was. You know, is there a potential benefit to, to funding something like virtual fencing in lieu of stock fencing? Uh, I mean, h- how much capital expenditure could Scottish government save themselves were they in a position to to fund virtual fencing as opposed to stock fencing?
1: Yeah, I think it would be good value because you look at the cost involved in fencing, you know, kilometres, kilometres of hill fencing and deer fencing. See, even outside of agriculture slightly, if you look at uh, regen schemes, you know, forestry regen schemes, they usually take many miles of um, deer fencing to make them work. Um, if you if you forget about the deer side of it, if the deer population is controlled in some other manner, um, if you then look at the livestock side and you can get regen or fence off a whole block of your hill, which you're going to say cows aren't going near that that's just going to be left to regenerate for 15 years without having to put in you know 10 10 pounds worth of uh, of deer fencing instead just using 30 virtual fencing collars i think that's good value so if they could kind of rejig rejig the kind of um their budget in terms of capital expenditure i think the virtual fencing collar stack up as good good value for public money in the right place of course
0: and uh, Malcolm, can you just outline for the listeners, I know you did this in the last podcast, but how does the technology actually work? What, what is the, the interaction between you sat at home on some piece of software to the caller to the cow? How, how, how does it all work?
1: OK, so fundamentally, you've got your, there's a collar goes on the cow, and the collar has a GPS receiver, so we know who it is. And there's also some kind of data connection in the collar as well to send and receive information. Um, and that links back to your phone. So... You have your phone or your laptop or your computer and you map out your virtual field, which is then sent back to the collar in the, on the cow's neck. And then the GPS receiver means we know where it is. And as the cow approaches the virtual fence line, initially it starts to get uh, a noise, a sharp noise, which gets louder and sharper as you get closer to the, to the fence or threshold and then if they do cross the fence line the virtual fence line they will then get a short electric pulse um to deter to them most cows take there's a bit of a training period but no more than a week or two and most of them are very well very well trained to it um they're very well conditioned and if they do break out uh the electric pulse stops and then they're given essentially time to calm down if they turn around again they can walk back through it like a, non, like a non-return gate, and then next time they approach it, it's it's going to deter them again. So that's fun, the fundamentals of it.
0: You would hope that, okay, you, you might have a couple of troublemaker cows, but generally if, if the herd is in one static location, that um, there isn't going to be an awful lot of, of manoeuvring beyond the boundary.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting actually. Um, I uh, was speaking to you know a lot of farmers and no-fence themselves about this, and um, it turns out. Uh, 90% of the warnings and electric pulses are attributable to 5% of the cows. So it really is your troublemaker cows who are always testing it. And there are certain cows who will graze right up to the, to, the, to the loudest noise, right up to the edge all the time. Certain ones will get like the quietest noise in the ear and they'll turn around and go away. They don't want any trouble. But some of your bold, stubborn cows, they're the ones who are always testing the limit. Um, so it's quite interesting to get an insight into kind of cow psychology
2: yeah it would be interesting as well to compare what feed is in front of them so if you've got quality grass so for on a rotational grazing system in the summer on green lush grass you're moving them every day or every however the beauty of this is you could move them every six hours if you wanted but you've got um good green grass heads are down they're then lying content there'll not be many warnings that day you know it's I just wonder if when when we go into autumn and into winter when things are a bit a bit less settled cows are a bit un, under a bit more pressure. my understand or my thought would be that there would be more warnings, but still those cows or what what I've heard anyway is those there might be more warnings, but there's not that electric you know the electric pulse that they get is very rare later on once they're trained it's very rare to actually get a pulse, so it's welfare wise well, there have been concerns that the original you know the callers that were trialed a long time ago were probably you know there was a there was a welfare question on those as to you know at that stage there wasn't a warning sound and there wasn't a it was just a pulse so the cow, the poor things didn't know where they were going or what was happening they just you know and i don't i think i would well i know I would fundamentally disagree that 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 is not okay you know, hanging an electric fence around someone's neck and and, and routinely electric, you know, giving it a jag is not okay. But when we hear that they are fully responsive to the audio warning, do you know, it's amazing how quick these cows settle into it. And, And the training process is interesting because it probably is a week or two before you would go and graze the central reservation of a motorway. But within a couple of days... Most cows are well into that system and totally relaxed and cool about what's happening. So um, it's it's interesting to see how how quick they take to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really is, and it's um like actually like, so with the sound coming in, some cows will actually never get an electric pulse at all. They 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 see their friends getting getting the pulse, and they um and they get you know they just learn it, and they'll they'll just never test it at all. And they they are very settled once they get once they get used to it. It's, uh,
2: <laughs> I had a a good question from a farmer, which was, you know, a a standard farmer question and one I had thought about myself is, if you have 100 cows and you know who the bosses are, do you need 100 collars? And then the next question, or my reply to him was, if you put uh, something that restricts the boss cow, so if you put a virtual fencing collar on it, is it still the boss cow or does someone else become the boss cow? So uh, I think at this stage we need... um, we need a collar for everybody. Interestingly, the the bull, you know, bulls are very tied to their, I suppose it's like a harem of cows, isn't it? It's a it's their group. And certainly there's, there's quite a few people who run bulls without a collar. But I do also wonder whether there's a role for that collar. Do you know, there's nothing like a bull getting in with some of these heifers next door to cause a neighborhood dispute. Um, I do wonder whether there's a role for, you know, just putting one on the bull. Probably technology needs to get the technology, not the GPS or the electric part of it. It's the actual collar itself. Uh, Keeping the collar on the bull can be a challenge. But I think if you've had an issue in the past with bulls, it'd be quite nice if you could say the bull couldn't go within 50, 50 foot of the March fence.
1: Yeah, no, I think logistically people have had a few challenges because, you know, so many bulls now, depending on breeding that, their necks are so thick compared to their head that it's um, just getting the collars to stay on is is a bit of a challenge, you know. Um, And because they're so much bigger, you know, they find it easier to, to, you know, break the collars. Um, Going back to what you said there, Robert, about um, leader cows or dominant cows, um, one of the guys I was dealing with, he did actually buy 20 collars for 40 cows and he picked out... um, Kind of matriarch cows and heifers who were kind of the most inclined to wander, and he did manage to get it to work uh, um, up up to a point on big, quite large areas. I don't think that would work if you're doing rotational grazing or anything too too tight. But uh, they do stick as one group generally, and they haven't they haven't strayed too far. So,
0: so Malcolm, you've been working with virtual fencing for a wee while now. Do we have any data sets coming out of these farms who are using virtual fencing? I mean, how has it impacted farm performance? Do do we know that? Are we in a position to know that?
1: Not quite yet. And just anecdotally, we don't have any kind of hard data to back that up. Um, the biggest impact uh, for some of the, the folk in my risk group were the, the handful who had large, unfenced areas and they're kind of on the fence about whether they'd be keeping cows or having more cows. So, so for them, it's almost been a hundred percent increase in output because they were considering whether they were going to, you know, have cows at all. But no, I mean. Um, we don't have much hard data yet it's all still kind of it's it's also new it's um difficult to quantify yet
2: david whiteford in south air so david's been on a few faz tv things and things in the past so he's he benefited from a digital boost grant to get his callers so that was a probably right place at the right time job i don't know if that's going to open up for everyone else but uh, he got grant funding and his deferred grazing system has led him to not make any silage for cows this year. So it's not that's not data but it's a significant saving for that business. He has plan B's, he's got bale grazing, he's got um forest crops and you know he's not totally in the lap of the gods when it comes to deferred grazing, but when we think about the principles of it, he's grazing dry cows which would normally used to be in, in a shed on slats or cubicles, um, they're now going to go outside and eat basically a sil- equivalent of a silage and straw diet of standing hay. It's going to work, you know, it, it'll work fine, and it, it, it'll work because he's got control over it. And interestingly, with that, he can actually graze the poorest parts of the hills, the hill first, where the cows would normally. If you just dump the cows on it, they would eat the good stuff first. But he can graze the poorest stuff and then when it comes to nearer calving he can come down onto the you know, the the better nutrition stuff and actually, you know, make full use of that hill area. So again, it's not it's maybe a tangent, it's not data, but uh, there's certainly plenty of evidence that it's working.
0: Now we're we're just doing a bit of speculating here, but but Scottish government have suggested that transformational change is required to tackle climate change and biodiversity decline. So I wanted to get some closing thoughts from you. What does transformational change mean to both of you and, and how does that look for, for virtual fencing,
2: for the beef sector and for Scotland more broadly? So for me, transformational change, so it's both exciting and it's terrifying so it depends what and who is at the helm when it comes to transformational change because we we could have a transformational change where we just stop farming we just import everything and forget it and that would that would be transformational and a change but i think and and i'm confident as well that the scottish government officials are You know, they're they're on the right page. They're they're aware of the importance of productive agriculture, particularly, or or, or including in the hills and uplands. So change change isn't, the problem is change isn't coming. Change is already here. So when we look at where the good, the best performers are, they're not waiting for transformational policy change. They're already transforming their businesses as we speak. And those guys probably are all... Now, virtual fencing is not for everyone. That's an important point here. There's a role for all sorts of systems. And and the beauty of Scottish agriculture is it's hugely diverse. You know, there's different landscapes, different systems. um, And that's what makes our job. I think the most interesting is that we deal with loads of different types of people and loads of different systems. But for your upland suckler guy, not everyone should do it. But everyone should look at virtual fencing because there is a huge opportunity there. And I think if we're looking transformational change, if we want to really change the shape of Scottish farming, we need to have a suckler cow that has a low impact on the environment, has a very positive impact on biodiversity and has a really low cost structure and makes money. And to me, the only technology I can see at the moment that can make inroads into all three areas is virtual fencing.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with quite a few of those points, of course. Um, yeah, the transformational change. I mean, I think what we might see in relation to cows in the next next 20 years, decades, couple of decades is likely maybe cows moving back up, the, hopefully back up the hill a little bit. I think economics right now is making a lot of kind of low ground farms, low ground mixed farms look at, um, should they just be growing cereals um, or maybe going moving towards sheep, low ground kind of intensive sheep operations instead of um, beef cows on, you know, grade grade two ground. So I think, I think we'll start to see cows move back up the hill a little, which to some extent is maybe the natural place for them. Um, and hopefully the virtual fencing, this kind of technology and other technologies can help facilitate that and make that management easier and slicker and maybe make up for a slight reduction in labour in the industry as a whole to facilitate cows uh, in the upland situations where where sheep are maybe not stacking up as well as they once did and hopefully low-cost hill cow cycler systems can. I
2: think what's really exciting is technology so the speed of change with technology has never been quicker. And I'm thinking back to when I was at uni, I remember seeing the first iPhone I had ever seen and thinking this thing was the most amazing thing that could do everything. And it was rubbish looking back at it. It was absolute mince. And now, you know, you, you wonder the no fence caller, there are other companies now working hard with, you know, prototypes and well advanced with virtual fencing systems. So, Although no fence, you know they're a great company and a great, you know they've they've done a great job to get us here. Other a uh, companies are available or are becoming available, and once we get competition in that market, I just think the sky's the limit with what these things could actually achieve. And I wonder down the line whether we could actually have a a virtual fencing system that actually does your fertility records, does your you know. Um, lameness you look at where all the all the data you can get from a pedometer in a dairy cow those pedometers have transformed and changed the dairy industry imagine we could get a caller that did that and told the cow where it was supposed to be as well you know what a powerful what a powerful product and what an exciting future
1: yeah no rob i'd agree with that and the two there's a handful of other companies which are now pretty much commercially available in their kind of home countries there's um the e-shepherd in australia which is now being distributed by Gallicers. is on i think in certain parts of australia you can now buy it commercially or, or go on a waiting list that's the kind of thing no offense about to that too once they're ready to launch they still have to scale up production so even once they you know technology is freely tried and tested there's still a uh, you know a lead-in process and it looks very very similar to no fence functionality they're not using sim cards they're using a base station type of setup so their cost per caller is a bit lower by looks of things but then you've got a capital cost of uh, a few or a couple of thousand pounds to put a base station on the farm and deal it that way but you won't have such a such a or have the same subscription fee going forward um they also look to have I think slightly more sophisticated technology in that you can automate breaks and stuff and like make them almost a gradually moving fence line. So you can do a bit, a bit more involved in how you do that. My understanding of no fence one, what I've seen in the app is it's a bit kind of draw one field, let them move, delete the other field. Whereas uh, the eShepherd looks more sophisticated in that you can pretty much automate a lot of that stuff, um, which is quite exciting. Another one of similar functionality is a company called Vents in America. They are commercially available, but only to um, cow herds of 500 cows or more in in North America. So a little bit beyond the average Scottish cycler herd right now. But again, similar functionality, but using a a local network, which I think is what you need in in those places in Australia and America. They don't have phone reception. It's a challenge sometimes in the west of Scotland, but in in the outback and uh, in America, it's even more of a challenge. So hopefully in another couple of years um, or a few years we'll start to see them being released in Europe and the UK and then we'll get a bit more competition, competition in the marketplace and start to see prices come down and just give us more choice too.
2: I think one thing we need to be clear on just now is what no fence or, or what no fence actually needs to operate as far as signal goes and it's not a four or five g four bar signal you know it only needs a 2g signal so the 2g coverage and i don't think we use it for much anymore but the 2g coverage you know is remarkably good across scotland so there there is there are some areas that have limited access but most areas have a really good coverage and, and certainly connectivity shouldn't be the thing so don't think because you've got rubbish mobile phone signal, don't think that you can't look at this system. Make sure the a uh, and the first thing no no offense do when you phone them up is check what your two G signal in your area is like. So you know there's that don't let the lack of connectivity for your mobile be the one that stops you having a look at this system.
0: Malcolm Robert, can I just thank you both for coming on Thrill of the Hill today? It's been really good to catch up with both of you. I uh, hope that uh, the listeners will take something away from from today. I know I have. And uh, yeah, pleasure to speak to you as always. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill of the Hill. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below.